before we get started, I just wanted to read you these news stories I pulled up, and trust me, there's a point to all this, just bear with me. In 1991, Josie Fremont went on her first overnight backpacking trip with her Girl Scout group in the San Bernardino Mountains. She was last seen on Saturday, September 14th, after she fell behind on a hiking trip. An extensive search was conducted, but she was never found. Her scout leader said it was like she was there one minute and then she was gone. She was only 11 years old. January 23rd, 1990. The camp of a young couple who disappeared the week prior was located near Shadowcrest Trail in the San Bernardino National Forest. The bodies of Jessica Pennington, 23, and her boyfriend David Reyes, 24, were discovered 1.5 miles further into the forest. Cause of death unknown. September 3rd, 1993. Missing hiker found near Gwyneth Lake after her cries for help were heard by nearby campers. A helicopter crew was promptly dispatched, though they found her dead at the base of the peak. Police were baffled, as it appeared Andrea had been deceased for a few days. The family of Andrea Roberts reported her missing when she never came home from her hike in the San Bernardino Mountains. These stories took place near my home in the 1990s. It's hard to see meaning in these tragedies, but what did they have in common? Fate. It may be grim to say, and you may write me off as a fatalist, but it's undeniable it was fate that bound them. These events were destined to happen, like the hands of a clock, always moving forward in the same direction, bound by the rules of what we know as reality. However, the last story, Andrea's story, the woman whose body was discovered because she cried out for help, you would think that part of the story couldn't possibly be true. Dead people can't cry for help. You would have to be crazy to believe such a thing. Somebody must have imagined it, or everybody must have. After all, the authorities determined she had been dead for several days when they found her. I'm here to tell you. It is true. I know firsthand that it's possible to go beyond death. Outside of its influence. Free of death's grasp. If only momentarily. Though I don't know what conditions must be met or what exactly is required to do so. I doubt anybody does. Perhaps it's like slipping through time. Between the tick, tick, ticking of the clock. Through a tear in reality, if you're able to find it. In the case of Andrea Roberts, I think that's exactly what happened. And because it did, it allowed her family some closure to know why their loved one would never be coming home. If her spirit hadn't called out for help from beyond our world, then her body might still be up there, her family forever hoping to one day discover her fate. 
I realize this is a hard thing to explain. Fate, as a concept, is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But regardless of which side of the philosophical fence you're on, it's always there doing what it pleases. How do I know? You must be asking yourself. You know when certain people die and come back they gain some higher understanding of what lies beyond? A near-death experience, they call it. What I'm talking about is kind of like that, though I'm not talking about death itself. No, that's easy to understand. That's a concept even children get familiar with as they mature. When someone close to them passes away, perhaps even a pet goldfish, it presents no challenge to the mind because death is just another mechanism into the natural order of things. No, I'm talking about something so unbelievable that it changes your perception of what's possible. I'm going to tell you about such a time when I found myself standing in the path of an actual monster and how I was powerless to avoid it. Through my own actions, I even sought it out without knowing. It was fate. I will tell you about the battle that would take place in order to decide if I would be spared or join the growing list of unfortunates whose life might be extinguished next. Not by the deranged whims of a killer, but in fact by the unwitting herald of its unyielding will. Yes, fate. Predetermined by a higher power. I can then only imagine how sick and twisted their mind must be. You're probably confused right about now. So let me start from the beginning. It's the only way I can paint the full picture and hopefully then you'll understand how the pieces lined up directly and indirectly by my hands. I grew up in the rural town of Sanderville on Shadow Mountain. It's about an hour and a half northeast of San Bernardino. It's hard to describe because there's really no way to do that and do it any justice. Even if you were looking at a photo, you'd be missing out on how beautiful it really is. Anywhere you'd look, it'd be panoramas galore of the lakes, mountains, forests, valleys, the sunsets. Stunning sunsets. As my father would say, Sanderville's a real utopia for your eyes. It used to be an old mining town established during the big California gold rush. Though, unlike the other gold rush towns from the time, it actually never died off, like so many others did when their golden hills ran dry. In the 1950s, a couple of real estate investors came to town, the Shevchenko brothers, real estate moguls from Poland. They helped fund a major highway expansion that would end up connecting us to the main highway then set about building up the infrastructure around town, turning us into the outdoor recreation monolith we are today. By the 1980s, Sanderville was fairly modernized. Before long, suburban neighborhoods started popping up around the flatter areas of town. Flatlanders, we 
called them. Those of us that lived in the older areas of town called them that anyway. We were no longer the secluded destination only local hunters or fishermen knew of. If I had to sum it up in one word, though, of what it was like for me growing up there, I would say quiet. The houses were spaced out far enough that if there were any other kids in my neighborhood, I never saw them. And as much as I loved my home and all the mischief I could get up to on our property, I was always a bit jealous of the kids from my elementary school who lived down in the more suburbanized areas of town, where they could go right next door to play together. It must have been nice. Our house was up on the mountain. It was a post-and-beam style, like a cabin, the kind where a series of vertical log posts support large horizontal logs. From my backyard, I could look down the valley and see all the way downtown. We were just on a little dirt road called Sutter Drive, easy to miss since it had a line of dense trees obscuring it from the street, even though it was just off the main road, Dalehurst Road. I lived there with my mother and father. My father was an electrician, so he wasn't around much during the day, and my mother was a retired preschool teacher. She would often be busy cooking, cleaning, doing a never-ending list of chores that I was often enlisted to help her with. I was only nine, though, so I wasn't allowed to operate the lawnmower or the chainsaw. That was my father's job, one he would begrudgingly tackle on the weekends when he was home. I was their only child. You can probably imagine the amount of loneliness I wrestled with day to day. Even so, I loved it there. If I put my mind to it, there was plenty for me to do. I had a little treehouse my father built for me out back, where I would pretend I was the leader of a pirate club. The neighborhood children were all in attendance, though they didn't exist except for in my mind. I would pretend I was giving them orders about how we were going to increase our pirate quotas for the month. I didn't know anything about running a club or even about pirates, so I just made it all up as I went along. Best of all, though, I had plenty of room to play fetch with my dog, Sally. She was a Vishla, a bird-hunting dog from Hungary. My father knew the breeder a man named Paul Fisher. He was the owner of the Twin Pines Lodge, but he bred Vishlas as a hobby. Paul had originally hired my father to do some electrical work at the lodge. When my father finished that job quicker than expected, Paul was impressed, so much so that he hired him to do some work at his personal home. It was a humongous Swiss chalet near Clayton Ridge. I'd never seen it, but my father said it was massive. It had six bedrooms and five bathrooms, and an indoor pool and spa. Anyway, one day while he was over there working for Mr. Fisher, he mentioned something to my father about one of his females, Lucy. She would be due soon. He said since my father had been so helpful, he could take one of the pups if he wanted one as a bonus. So a month later, when Lucy delivered five healthy pups, my father took him up on that offer, and shortly thereafter brought a pup home as a surprise for me. I immediately fell in love with her when I saw her. I named her Sally. That first night and every night after, Sally slept in my room. 
first I tried to get her to sleep on the floor, but that never agreed with her. She preferred to be next to me, licking my face off as I did my best to try and go to sleep. From the beginning, we shared an immediate bond. When I would walk, she would be right at my side, not trailing behind or going on ahead. If I was standing, she would be standing with me, leaning her body into me as if she was letting me know that she was there and no harm would come to me as long as she was around. She was the best friend anyone could ask for, and she was mine. Also, she was the only other living pirate club member besides me. But when she got too big for me to carry her into the treehouse, well, then we had to move the club into the driveway, where it was level enough that we could play fetch without fear of the ball getting lost in the shrubs or rolling down the mountain, never to be seen again. Sometimes I would ride my bike down Sutter with... Sally following happily beside me. I'd always stop before we got to the main road, Dalehurst. Not because we weren't allowed to, but because I used Dalehurst as sort of a marker, a boundary I could try racing Sally to before turning around and dashing back to the finish line. I never had any real chance of winning, though. Vishas are one of the fastest dog breeds in the world, capable of hitting speeds of around 40 miles per hour. So, even when I'd go into a full sprint, she never had to quicken her pace. She'd only go into a slightly faster version of her normal walk. Even though our races were pretty pointless, because I never won, Sally always participated happily, and I was happy. As beautiful as it was, I rarely saw any people. Dalehurst Road felt pretty deserted for the most part. The only people that seldom drove by were the ones who lived there. If I was out riding, I might occasionally see somebody pass by, though they could never see me. This was due to a row of trees that obscured the view from the main road. Basically, where I'd be standing, you could see out, but you couldn't see in. I remember this bothering me because... I wanted to be able to wave to my neighbors as they passed. On TV, kids always lived in suburban neighborhoods, and they always interacted with their neighbors. Though I didn't know any of mine personally, I knew their cars. Let's see, I can still remember certain things. There was a blue van that had Brower Plumbing written on the side in bright orange lettering, with who I assume was the owner's face plastered next to it. I don't remember what the driver looked like, but when he drove by, he would always be listening to talk radio. Then there was the red Suburban that belonged to the Petersons, which my mom knew from the women's club she was a member of. The club held their meetings in what used to be the old town hall off Madison. The Petersons were a family of five, consisting of Steve and Gloria Peterson and their kids Danny, Jacob, and Paige, I think. Their kids were older than I was, so they never had much reason to interact with me. Every once in a while, though, while in passing at the grocery store or something, they would say hi. Then there was a white pickup truck, driven by an older couple, who at the time I remember the most vividly because the husband always wore these really thick prescription glasses. The kind where the person's eyes look slightly bugged out or bigger than they should. They weren't comically large or anything but I imagine he would have a hard time seeing without them. 
1995. Yeah, I, I remember it was that year because that's when the older gentleman with the white pickup, his wife died. I mean, at the time, I didn't know that for a fact, but it was obvious because they were always seen together. But that year, I never saw her again. They were really old, so it just made sense. By this time, I was 10 years old. My school, Little Horn Elementary, had a fundraiser to renovate and expand the school library. The one we had was pretty outdated. Before the renovation, it was always so sad and old-fashioned. There weren't any computers. We still used the archaic index card system. And it smelled like dust and old bookbinding glue. The walls were a puke green and the carpets were an orange-brown. In retrospect, probably good color choices to hide all the times kids had actually puked in it over the decades. I remember when Tommy Luque lost his lunch at the main reading table. There was a big purple elephant lamp in the center of it. All the kids scattered as soon as he'd done it. In their haste to get away from Chicken Nugget Ground Zero, one of them had actually accidentally knocked over the elephant. It didn't break, though. But that noise is when everybody else in the library turned around and had seen what had happened. Poor Tommy. They called him Tommy Puke after that. A name that stuck with him until high school. Kids can be cruel. Thankfully, he's doing well now, though. He makes good money as a lawyer in L.A. My cousin's friends with his sister, so that's how I know. In case you were worried about Tommy. Sorry, back to the fundraiser. It was the kind where they enlisted the help of children and have them sell X amount of something. The more you sold, the better prizes you got. Clever way to avoid those pesky child labor laws. In our case, we were selling coupon books. Essentially, it was a book about 50 to 75 pages long, full of coupons. All for things you could buy locally, but probably never would. They handed out a prize brochure to each of us. It had all the different prizes we could earn, and they were all separated by different prize tiers. Most were cheap knockoffs of things kids would actually want, like a cheaply molded alien creature where the arms and legs didn't move, or a whistling surf ball that was clearly meant to look like a Nerf product. There were some good things in there, though. Each tier had a gold star prize. That was basically the best prize you could earn for that tier. I can still remember some of them. There was a boombox, an electric guitar, a bike, and a Ninja Turtle Walkman. That was the one that caught my eye because it was in one of the middle tiers. It actually seemed possible to obtain. I knew I would never be able to get anything from the higher tiers since where I lived would be too much of a handicap to overcome. Unlike the Flatlanders, I could never just go walking down my street and knock on everyone's door. It was much too hilly and windy to be practical in my neck of the woods. Plus, the trees grew so thick on Dalehurst Road that I had never even seen most of the houses in my neighborhood. If they were anything like mine, then you would have to commit to traveling down a branching path before you could even see the house. I had my mind set on the Walkman, however. So I always kept that possibility in the back of my mind that if I got close enough to earning my prize, I would suck it up and take my chances with my neighbors, begging them to buy a coupon book from me. 
Thankfully, I did get a big boost in sales with the help of the other members of my mother's club. Somehow, she convinced almost all of them to buy from me, including Mrs. Peterson. I was still short about a dozen sales. Even after spending several weekends standing outside all the local stores in town, including Wrigley's Market over in Havenstead, the next town over. I felt bad having my mom drop me off all over like that, but it was the only way I could make any real progress towards my goal. As it was, I was approaching our sales deadline. We only had until December 8th to make our final sales, and it was already the first. I had to wrap it up fast. Right around one week from winter break, it was nearing the end of the day and the teacher asked if anyone had any more sales to turn in. I watched Johnny Dominguez get up and give her what he had. I still remember his smug face as she praised him. He got a big pat on the back because not only would he be earning the Ninja Turtle Walkman, but the boombox too. By this point in the year, he was like the fifth kid from my class that was getting one. I remember thinking how unfair it all was. Why did I have to work so much harder than them? One kid even told me that he knew someone from our school that had earned the bike two months ago. Here I was, struggling to get a middle tier prize and some other kid already got the highest tiered prize you could get? That's when I admitted to myself I'd do it. That thing I always knew I would be desperate enough to do. That night at dinner, I told my parents my plan. That tomorrow, I'd venture across Dalehurst Road and I would get the rest of my sales. Because if the Flatlanders could go door to door, then I would too. It would just take me longer as I'd have to walk much farther between the houses. But I had the whole explanation rehearsed. And it wasn't like anyone else was coming around to our neighborhood to market to our little kingdom up on the mountain. I just had to explain that. Just as I was about to, I got their permission. I remember being a little taken aback by how easily they had just said, go for it. I guess they knew how much it meant to me. I suppose they were proud of how seriously I was taking the fundraiser. My mother offered to come with me, but I waved her off. I honestly thought that if she came with me, she would slow me down somehow. That's how single-minded about the whole thing I was. Plus, I was already so used to being up alone on the mountain that I really thought nothing of it. It was my home, after all. I could barely sleep that night. Still upset about Johnny Dominguez and how effortlessly he seemed to make his sales. His parents must have done all the work, I remember thinking to myself. When morning came, I wolfed down my breakfast and brushed my teeth. I put on my nice collared shirt and slacks, the same blue shirt and brown slack ensemble that I wore to church sometimes. You would think I made the complete effort of presenting myself had I not worn my favorite worn pair of sneakers. The ones I usually wore when helping my father with the heavier chores. It was in my haste to leave that I decided to go with those rather than spend the extra five minutes it would have taken to find my church-going ones. As I walked out the front door, I could hear Sally whining in the window. I went over and placed my hand on the glass, which she licked excitedly. My mom hated it when she did that. Mainly because if left unclean, there would be a 
cloudy residue all over the glass. But between the window cleanings, you could see where she liked to press her wet nose, the lick prints that would still be there after she greeted me as I got home from school. It was obvious that she wanted to come with me, so I went back inside, grabbed relief from the coat rack, and I glanced at my mom and dad at the kitchen table. They smiled and nodded as I told them I would be taking Sally with me. So I clicked on our leash and we were out the door. When we got to Dalehurst Road, I remember standing there for a little bit, pondering what direction we should go. I was pretty unfamiliar with what any of my neighbor's properties looked like. The only familiar thing to me was the road itself. I decided we should head west. I picked that direction because it was a tiny bit more straight, or at least tended to have the longest stretches of the road where it was. It would just be easier to see cars coming around the corners, if there were any. As we journeyed down the road, I remember how calm the breeze felt, the sound of the leaves crunching beneath my feet. I could hear the birds singing in the trees. We had walked around three different bends before I saw the first driveway. It was one I'd always see on the way to school, but never been on. As I got closer, the sign read, Weston Drive. I made the decision of leaving this one for last. As it was closest to home, I would just hit it up on the way back. The morning went on pretty uneventfully. The next road Sally and I came across was Lancaster Drive. We followed it for a while until we came to a little red ranch-style house. It sat in the middle of a vacant lot. It looked like at some point there were trees, maybe grass and even some flowers. There were tractor marks everywhere, though. I could see a bobcat parked in the distance. As I walked up onto the porch, the wood creaked beneath my feet. I knocked, but there was no answer. I could have sworn for a moment. I saw movement inside, but after knocking one more time and waiting another three minutes, I concluded no one was home. The next house Sally and I came to was the Petersons, though as soon as I recognized her van in the driveway, we just turned around and headed back towards Dalehurst. Mrs. Peterson was nice enough to have already purchased a book from me, so I didn't see any purpose in bothering her again. And that's about how the rest of the morning went. Either no one was home or they pretended not to be. Who would have thought that people who live in the mountains would prefer solitude over the company of strangers, let alone a boy and his dog trying to sell them a book of coupons for things they'd probably never buy. As it was nearing lunchtime, my stomach started to grumble, and it became painfully obvious this whole thing had been a disaster. Sally was having a good enough time, though. We got back on Dalehurst and began heading back in the direction of our house. I remembered we still hadn't gone down Weston Drive, and I figured that it still might be worth checking out, though by now I was woefully pessimistic. As soon as we set foot on Weston Drive, it was obvious that this was an immaculately kept piece of property. Carefully planted gardenias, maple trees, oaks, and junipers, beautiful orchids, roses, and tulips. 
It was like I was in a storybook. And I was only on the path to the house. I hadn't even gotten there yet. Sally had a field day smelling all the different scents as we passed. Eventually, the house at the end of the heavenly path came into view. It was a tall, A-frame house. The kind you see popularized in outdoor magazines. The ones showing off glamorous lodgings with carefully staged exteriors and interiors, enticing the reader to drop everything and take their next vacation there. But this was a house. And what a house it was. The exterior was a dark cherry rosewood with hand-carved inlays around the front door, carefully red-painted accents around the trimming, and the porch railing was made of the same wood and also painted to match. The door handle was handmade. It looked like a blacksmith took great care in sculpting the twisting bark patterns so carefully woven into its surface. It was like every detail of this house was carefully planned and thought out. Sally looked at me and tilted her head, probably wondering why I was just standing there and hadn't knocked yet. I chuckled at her expression and knocked on the door. Almost immediately, I heard movement inside, like someone was on their way over to answer. I took that time to observe the carvings around the door more carefully this time, and I saw an image of a boy holding an apple next to a wolf that he didn't notice was there. He had his back turned to it, and the posture of the wolf was strange, like like it was ducking down as it approached the boy. I turned to look at the other carvings I hadn't noticed before. They appeared to have similar themes, but I couldn't decipher them in time. That's when the door opened. An old man appeared in the doorway. I recognized him immediately. He had those thick prescription glasses on. It was the man in the white pickup truck I would sometimes see pass by my house. I never saw him up close before. He looked to be around 70. He was neatly trimmed. He had carefully slicked back hair, though it was more white than gray. Hello, sir. My name's Greg. I live just down the road. I'm trying to raise money for my school. I came here today to see if you would buy a coupon book for me? I asked. He grinned as I fumbled with my backpack. I wanted to pull out a book as quickly as possible so I could show him all those deals he would be missing out on if he passed. I felt Sally begin leaning into me. Nice to meet you, Greg. Do come in. You can show me the book in there, he said, still grinning. Oh, I don't know, Mr... I trailed off, realizing I didn't even know his name. An image of my mother suddenly flashed into my mind, reminding me not to trust strangers. Mr. Erickson, but you can call me Walter, he replied. I looked down at Sally, and she looked on edge. When I looked back up at Walter, I saw he was frowning at her. Leave the dog outside, he said coldly. I looked back down at Sally and gave her a pat on the head. Wait for me here, girl. I'll be right back. She looked at me, confused. Walter motioned for me to come in. As I crossed the doorway and stepped into the foyer, I heard Sally let out a little whine. Walter closed the door behind us and motioned for me to follow. The inside of the house was just as stunning as the outside. 
Beautifully decorated wooden carvings etched across the walls. Even the crown molding looked handcrafted. The biggest chandelier I'd ever seen hung directly overhead. As I followed Walter further in, and I passed what I think was some kind of library room over on my left, I remember thinking how it looked like something off of a TV show. The one where a dapperly dressed gentleman sits in a red easy chair in front of the fireplace, surrounded by hundreds of books upon handcrafted shelves. In here, he said as he stood at the end of the hall. He pulled an ornately decorated sliding door to the side. For a second, it looked like the door had the same carving on it. The one with the boy and the apple, just a bigger version of it. Though I couldn't confirm, I only caught a momentary glimpse of it. You have a very nice house, Mr. Erickson. I, I mean, Walter, I said, stepping into the living room. Again, it appeared no expense was spared. It looked just as detailed as everything else I'd seen thus far. A giant red painting hung on the wall just outside my field of vision. But before I could look at it, Walter spoke again. Please, have a seat. I'll go tell my wife you're here, he said, pointing to a chair towards the back of the room. Instead of leaving the room to get his wife, he walked towards the center of the room, towards a large rug. That's when I started to get a strange feeling in my stomach, and I started thinking about the last sentence that he said. No one had seen Mr. Erickson's wife in years. He was a private person, so I didn't know for certain she was dead, but most people I knew just assumed she was. Confused, I did as Walter said. I walked to the chair towards the back of the room and sat down. That's when I noticed the painting, and my heart sank. Depicted in the foreground was a boy holding an apple. That part was the same, but now that the image was bigger and more clear, I realized that was no wolf I saw in the carving. It was a bloody corpse, wearing a wolf skin crouching on all fours, pretending to be a wolf, ghastly pale skin stuck out from under the fur, mockingly, as if only half-heartedly hiding beneath it. The portion that just appeared to be painted red was actually a mosaic of half-devoured bodies piled up to one another. My mind did its best to try and reason away what my eyes were looking at. And that's when I realized Mr. Erickson said something strange. Your wife, Mr. Erickson? I tried to ask calmly, now visibly shaking. I could hear Sally scratching at the front door now. Why, yes, little fly, he chuckled warmly, like he was talking to a baby. A chill ran up my spine and I froze. Why did you call me a fly? I asked, shocked at his sudden change in tone. It was obvious that something was very wrong, that he was up to something, but my body didn't move. I desperately wanted to run, 
and I thought maybe asking him why he called me that would clear up some misunderstanding, or maybe it would be the push I needed to force my body to listen. Tell me, Greg, he said my name as if it tasted sour leaving his lips. Which do you prefer, an apple on the tree or an apple on the ground? He asked, his face now grinning. What? I replied, confused. He raised his right fist up with his fingers facing me, pointing to it with his left hand, like he was going to teach a toddler something rudimentary. Come on, Greg, this isn't difficult. You have an apple still on the tree, he explained, as he slowly started lowering the fist, still pointing to it. And an apple on the ground. I just stared at him, not really knowing what to say. And suddenly my body flinched as he brought his hands together in a single clap. Anticipation now spread across his face. Which do you choose? His face looked wild now, like he was becoming more unhinged by the second. I suppose the apple in the tree. I stammered. He danced around the room like I had won the final prize of some game show. That's right. And do you know why that is? He asked excitedly. No, sir. I quivered. Because of your ego, Greg. He turned a glance at the giant painting. You see the boy and the fly in the picture? They're the same. I didn't want to, but for some strange reason I felt compelled to look. I hadn't seen a fly in the image before, but sure enough, there it was. I felt the need to walk closer to it, like some force was beckoning me, daring me to gaze upon it. There it sat, on the surface of the apple, and because of its size I had missed it before. On the body of the fly there was a tiny, fly-sized human skull where its head should be. The skull's mouth opened wide in a pained expression, one terrible eye in the center of its agonized face. Walter began talking again, and I jolted back around. For a split second, I forgot he was there. Flies eat whatever they can find, just as you would if I took all your earthly comforts from you. Your television, your radio, your house, your food, your water, the clothes on your skin. If you were left in the woods with nothing except yourself, you too would eat whatever you could find. That's the ultimate expression of the universe, my boy. Everything is consumed by something else. He laughed. Don't worry, Greg. She won't be offended. You still have your ego. She loves all manner of flies. Whether they know the struggle of life or they lie to themselves, she consumes them all. In one swift motion, he bent down and uncovered the rug, revealing a trap door. He opened it, and instantly I was hit with a pungent odor I'd never smelled before. 
but I immediately knew what it was. Death. Martha, the little fly is here, he cheered into the black opening. Out of it, a moan answered back. Tell me, Greg, what do you know about fate? He asked, and I heard what sounded like a loud step and another moan echo from the bottom of the hole. I want to go home, I screamed, fear still holding me in place. I could hear Sally barking now outside the front door. No, that's not where you're meant to be. He moved away from the open trap door and circled around me, back to the doorway we came in from, blocking my path. Out of all the places in the world you showed up here, you know I have to thank you for that. Normally I'd have to drive down the mountain to find the flies. The sound of my heartbeat was deafening now. His head motioned to the painting on the wall. Would you like to know what it's called? He asked, looking at the painting. The Banquet of Flesh, he said as he twisted his face in an unnatural grin. Suddenly I heard the thudding pace of the footsteps quicken ever so slightly. Thump. Thump. I snapped out of my stupor and raced for the exit. I could hear Sally barking frantically now. As I got near Mr. Erickson, I tried ducking under his arms, but it was no good. He managed to grab the back of my collar and forced me to the ground, my left cheek hitting the wooden floor hard. Feeling my consciousness waver for a moment, it felt like bells ringing in my head. Thump. Thump. I could feel the footsteps getting closer now. Any second something would emerge from the hole. Martha, quickly now, or the fly will get away, he exclaimed cheerfully, still holding on to the back of my collar. I'm hungry. I twisted to my back, and with my left hand I pulled the glasses off his face, and with the other I jammed my thumb deeply into his right eye. He let me go, and I sprung back onto my feet. I hurried back to the front door. As I reached the door handle, something grabbed my backpack and started yanking me backwards. I tucked in my arms so the shoulder straps would slide over my shoulders. I was free again and I swung the door open. Sally leapt in over me and charged at Mr. Erickson. I tried calling her, but she had a hold of his forearm, pulling and twisting it violently. As he let out a pained cry, I scrambled outside. I ran as fast as I could. I got back to Dalehurst and bolted in the direction of my house. It was then I realized Sally wasn't with me. I looked back over my shoulder, hoping I would see her catching up to me. Only I saw no one. Things happen too fast to think clearly. One minute I'm asking Mr. Erickson to buy a book, and the next he's trying to pull me into his basement. I think if his house had been any farther down the road from mine, I would have just tried hiding in the nearby bushes and trees. But in that moment, I remember I felt like I was close enough to my house that making a run for it was a better gamble. I was beginning to realize Sally bought me time, and I needed to run home as fast as I could in order to get help. I didn't know if she was injured or worse. 
Faster and faster I ran, my sneakers slapping the pavement. I remember focusing on keeping my feet from tripping each other. I was running so fast I knew I was hitting my limit, that if I tried pushing it anymore I would definitely trip and fall. Suddenly out of the corner of my eye I saw Sally dart out from the left side of the road, Mr. Erickson's side of the road. I remember thinking that I bet she didn't have any trouble catching up to me. I was so happy to see her, I started crying even more. We rounded the first bend, and then we followed the road as it curved. This gave me a slight comfort because even if Mr. Erickson did make it to Dalehurst Road, I would be obscured by the mountain now. Even if he pursued me, he'd have to make the right decision before deciding which direction to go. It was when we rounded the second bend. I heard the truck engine blaring down the road. I knew right then it was Mr. Erickson, and somehow by a cruel fate, he had guessed right. Sally pressed ahead running in front of me now, by about seven feet. She had never done that before. Normally she'd stay much closer. I remember pondering that for a second, even briefly forgetting about the truck, but I remembered that no, if she wanted to, she could have easily have left me in the dust. That's when I realized what she was doing. She was trying to keep me focused on running. To give me something to aim for. I, I know it doesn't make sense to hear. But I truly believe it was her way of motivating me to just focus on her. Ignore everything else and concentrate solely on keeping up. We were closing in on the last bend but the pickup was much closer now. I turned to look, and I could now see the wild expression on Mr. Erickson's face. His mouth was twisted and wide, like he couldn't wait to hit me with his truck. Sally barked and I snapped out of it, turning back around. She was off to the right shoulder now, waiting for me at the bend. I almost didn't see her, and I wouldn't have if not for her barking. My body wanted to quit but I kept my gaze on her as I pleaded with my body to please, please keep going. But the truck was too close now. Even though I was just about to round the corner, it would still be a hundred or so feet from Sutter Drive. At that point, trying to make it seem hopeless, Mr. Erickson would be running me over any second, and my pace was weakening, and for a split second I almost gave in to the urge to quit. I glanced at Sally for the last time. She was still in the same spot on the shoulder of the road. Right at the corner. Barking. Urging me to keep running towards her. The pickup truck was now ringing loudly in my ears. And just as I was expecting it to make contact and send me crashing into the pavement, I caught Sally. She bounded into the trees and I followed her around a large oak. That's when I heard the sound of screeching tires and crunching metal. But we didn't stop. Sally guided me through the woods, this time keeping close as she always did. We weaved in and out of the brush, ducking under branches that tried snagging my clothes. Before I knew it, we were back on Sutter. My lungs felt like they were about to explode, but still we kept running. All the way down Sutter to the front door, I kept thinking, Almost there. Just a little bit further and you and Sally are home free. When we got to the front door, I pounded on the wood with one hand and rang the doorbell with the other. 
My mom came rushing over. She could immediately tell something was wrong. My father appeared in the doorway immediately after. He had been watching TV in the living room and my mother answered the door. He must have heard what a stuttering mess I was. I did my best to explain what had happened, though I probably didn't make much sense. That's when I realized for the last time, Sally wasn't with me. It took only 15 minutes for the police to arrive. They found Mr. Erickson still in his truck, alive but badly injured. Apparently, he was driving without his glasses. I knew why. When they searched his house, what they found was a literal house of horrors. We all found out just how bad it was when the story hit the news. That night, no one in Sanderville could believe it. He had been luring people down into his basement for years. When there was no one to lure, he would resort to taking them against their will. Though he was careful never to take anyone from town. He liked posing as the owner of a fancy lodge, offering anyone who would believe him a free place to stay, dragging anyone too trusting down into the basement. He was also really good at finding his victims alone. He would drive around late at night and look for any opportune moments to strike, whether that meant waiting for someone working the graveyard shift at the Havenstead Walmart to get off work or waiting in the bushes near the entrance to a hiking trail. He must have barely slept. To be driven by such a dark force like that, it still makes me sick to my stomach. I remember in one interview when he was in jail, he told the reporter that his wife was the daughter of Anubis and that when he offers her enough sacrifices that she'll swallow the sun, she'll make him a king and as all the night children we will serve. His wording was very specific on that. When I offer her, as in, he still has every intention of doing it. I pray he never gets the chance. As for his wife, when the police initially found her in the basement, they found her catatonic. They did everything they could to try and get her to talk, but she was completely unresponsive. This didn't sit well with me because I was there, and she sounded very awake to me, especially with all that noise she made climbing the stairs. I don't know what became of her. The last thing I ever heard was that when she was transferred to the hospital after being rescued, she tried to eat anyone who she came into contact with. I guess they had to keep her sedated after that. Mr. Erickson got life in prison for what he had done and what he tried to do to me. For months, the news media had a field day with the story. The reclusive old man who lived out his dark fantasy in his lair in the hills, 
and the country bumpkins who never realized that a monster like that lived among them. Sanderville did its best to pick up the pieces, though it will never be the same. Our name is now synonymous with Walter Erickson. You know what he was right about? I was destined to be there that day. Out of all the houses in the world, I ended up at the one with the delusional old man trying to resurrect a god and usher in the apocalypse. But that's the thing about fate, isn't it? It doesn't really care if we're just trying to have a normal day. You're probably wondering about Sally. I don't want to go into details. I always just cry, thinking about it. But around the time I had just made it to Dalehurst Road, Sally was fatally wounded during her struggle with Mr. Erickson. They said she died in his driveway, that she lost too much blood. I think she was trying to keep him from getting to his truck. That's only half of what she did, however. After Sally died in that driveway, she didn't. She did not die. She found a path through the threads of fate and immediately made her way back into our world. I'm sure the forces that govern our existence did everything they could to pull her back. But she wouldn't let them. Not until after she caught up to me and guided me home. That's how I'm still here. When you hear a story about someone surviving the next terrible tragedy, either due to a unexplainable set of events or something so impossible there's no way it could be true. You remember that if you stand defiantly when destiny comes for you, when it's your turn to take part in your final scene, that there's a chance you could too do it on your own terms. Like they did. Andrea Roberts, and Sally. A lot of people think I'm crazy, and that's fine. But after experiencing this firsthand, there's no denying it. That even after the life left Sally's body, we forged our own path. Together. After the incident, I grew up as normal as I could. But the hole in my heart has yet to close. I graduated from high school and moved to Fullerton, where I'm currently attending Cal State University. I call my mother and father frequently just to check in and see how they're doing. They still live in the same house. I miss Sally so much. 
I um, started having this reoccurring dream. I'm uh, eight again, back in my bed in our old house on Shadow Mountain. I can uh, see myself sleeping like I'm there but floating above myself. I can see that Sally's next to me. She looks at my face and then I wake up. I don't exactly know what to make of it. But I take comfort in thinking that she's somehow letting me know it's okay. That she knows how much pain I'm in. And that she's trying to make it go away. (laughs) Even after doing so much. When I visit home during the holidays, I, uh, I like to take a walk to that large oak on Dalehurst Road, the one that uh, Mr. Erickson crashed into. I like to trace the exact footsteps Sally and I took as we sprinted home. I know I didn't imagine it despite what anyone says or what my therapist might think, because... When I'm there and I stop to listen to the sound of the wind and the leaves crunching underneath my feet, I can feel her body pressing up against my legs. I know that it's Sally. (laughs) 